Anthony Allen Shore was born on June 25, 1962. He was executed by lethal injection in Texas in 2018. He was the first person to be executed in Texas that year. The strange part was the 55-year-old had asked for the death penalty, and no one seemed to object. Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Melissa Lancaster. And I just wanted to remind you guys to check out Paranormal Experience with Melissa and Mandy. We have a really good episode that's going to come out this week on the story behind the haunting in Connecticut. It's one of the funnest episodes we've done in a really long time. But back to business. This episode talks about sexual assault and murder. Parental discretion is advised. Anthony Shore's childhood from the outside seemed fairly normal. Aside from the family frequently moving, His father worked for NASA, which required the family to relocate a lot. But Anthony's parents often both engaged in affairs, and this led to a lot of arguing. His sister seems to feel that they were raised relatively normal. She feels that their parents' divorce in 1976 was the worst thing that had happened in their childhood. But Anthony came out saying that his father often beat him. And there was an instance when his mother sexually abused him when he was 13 years old. Anthony did start exhibiting disturbing behavior early on. Anthony was known to have a high level of intelligence. People claim at the genius level. I guess he could just pick up a musical instrument and learn it immediately. And he did remain a musician throughout his adulthood. He also wrote music. But in true serial killer fashion, Anthony killed a neighbor's cat when he was young. As he got older, he would talk his sister into helping him pick up girls. He told her that the random girls that he would drive around looking for would be willing to get into his car if she was with him. They wouldn't get in if he was in the car alone. Anthony and his sister would drive around until he found a girl and he would ask the girl if she wanted a ride. And when the girl got in the car, he would remind his sister that she had somewhere else to be, and he would drop her off. She doesn't know what Anthony did when he was alone with the girls, but she feels that he was molesting them. She may feel a little bit of guilt. She did say she sort of assisted him with this, but she didn't realize how ill he was or how serious the situation was. Once, Anthony also sent her up to a house to ask a girl if she wanted to come out to play. And when she did, Anthony walked up to the girl and instantly started fondling her. Anthony once boasted about him and his friends beating a homeless man until they felt that he was dead. And they just left the man there for dead. He told his sister this, and frightened, she told him to never speak of it again. 
1983, Anthony married Gina Lynn Worley. The couple had two daughters together, Amber and Tiffany. Anthony supported the family as a telephone technician and a musician. His sister claimed that she thought it was strange that Anthony was always the one to bathe the girls. The couple divorced after about 10 years of marriage. At first, the girls would go visit their father on weekends, and they always had a great time. But soon, Gina, who was the girl's mother, wanted to live with her boyfriend and sent the girls to live with her father, giving him custody. The girls were okay with this at first. I mean, they had always had fun at their dad's. They would build sandcastles together, go to fairs. Tiffany said that her father was smart and funny, but her father was a master manipulator. Once the girls moved in with him, things started to change. But something that I feel is so strange is none of my sources mention the girl's mother again after this. It's almost as if she drops completely out of their lives, but I couldn't actually confirm that. I'm not sure the reason behind it. Anthony would buy the girls nice things, and the girls were expected to dress nice and have their hair done. Anthony really liked to keep up appearances. Tiffany describes it like if people saw that they had nice electronics and looked the part, no one would notice that there was no food in the house. Or at least food for the girls. Anthony would cook himself a nice steak dinner. He worked after all, so he felt that he deserved it. He would leave the girls to eat ant-infested peanut butter. The girls hated cleaning up the kitchen after their father made himself a delicious meal and they sat there and watched him eat it hungry. The family didn't have a washer and dryer. The girls had to wash the clothes in the bathtub. The house eventually became infested with cockroaches, and at times Anthony would lock the girls in their room and go out indulging in drugs. I mean, I would never lock my children in their room, but if I did, I would be afraid that they would wake up. But Anthony wasn't because he would make the girls hot chocolate at bedtime, it took them a while to realize they always became really sleepy very quickly after drinking the hot chocolate. Their father was drugging them. If the girls would have woke up and tried to leave the house, though, you know, like in case of a fire, they wouldn't have been able to. It would have been useless because their windows were also nailed shut. But Anthony was so good at keeping up appearances that the girls loved to have sleepovers with their friends, and their friends were allowed over. Anthony was always on board. He provided revealing dress-up outfits for the girls to wear, turned on music, broke out the camcorder, and recorded the girls' dance parties. The girls were too young to even think twice about this behavior. Until Tiffany and Amber did start waking up in the middle of the night, and they would see their father staring at them, pleasuring himself, or in the actual act of molesting them, the girls, fearing for themselves, pretended to be asleep. And these girls had every reason to fear for their safety. Anthony didn't just sexually abuse the girls, he would beat them as well going as far as wrapping them up in a sheet and tying it together to restrain them. And if they didn't stop crying, because crying was not allowed. 
he would take a pillow and place it over their face, smothering them. I've seen a lot of claims that their aunts called social services, and some of these say like two times, you know, sometimes it's five times. Tiffany herself only described one visit from the agency. She described this on Evil Lives Here, Season 2, Episode 6, titled My Secret Nightmare. Teachers had noticed the girls with bruises and no food at school. The girls would come in dirty and the other kids would ridicule them. A call was placed to CPS and they arranged a visit. Anthony scared the girls, telling them that state workers were their enemy and they would take them away and they would be separated. He told them they would be put somewhere worse. He coached them to say what the worker would want to hear. They cleaned the house. The worker came that day and left, not noting anything was wrong. But the abuse was starting to take an emotional toll on the girls. They felt helpless. Tiffany once took a bunch of pills that she found around the house to try to commit suicide, but thankfully, she only succeeded in making herself sick. This was the moment she realized her father did not care about her. He knew that she had done this, and he didn't do anything to try to make her feel better. Eventually, Anthony met Amy Lynch. He decided to marry her in 1997. He wanted to spend time with his new wife without his children. So he called their grandmother in California and asked her to take them for a while. But the grandmother didn't want to take the girls. He had to threaten her, telling her that she would never see them again. So she unwillingly took the girls for a while. Later, when Anthony's sister wanted to keep Amber in her home for a while just to help her with her schoolwork, Tiffany broke down. She begged her aunt not to leave her alone with her father. Tiffany confessed the years of abuse to her aunt, and the family did act. They convinced the girls to tell the authorities the stories of beatings, druggings, and rape. Anthony was convicted in 1998. His wife, Amy, didn't believe the allegations. She stated that he made her believe him. And she helped him. She sold their instruments, liquidated her house, all to help him pay for lawyers. Anthony spent minimal time incarcerated for the abuse of the girls. He did receive eight years of probation, and he was added to the sex offender registry. This put Anthony's DNA on file. For the girls, their nightmare lessened. I would say it was over, but their grandmother, Anthony's mother, who took them in, she said that it was a nightmare raising them. They were not the kind of children that grandparents longed for. And she still supported her evil son. I wish the girls would have been placed with someone who understood that they had been through something terrible, something they needed time and help to heal from. But her comment leads me to believe that that was not the case here. I suppose at least for the rest of their childhood, they were free of the monster that was their father. Two years later in 2000, 
a Houston cold case team pulled out the files on Maria Del Carmen Estrada. In 1992, a delivery man had found 21-year-old Maria's body behind a Dairy Queen. Maria had been raped and strangled. She had been cut on her mouth and bitten on her breast. She was strangled with a homemade tourniquet. Maria fought for her life. Investigators were able to obtain the DNA from her attacker from under her fingernails. Pulling out Maria's file in 2000 as a cold case, her DNA was sent to the lab. This was just a few years after Anthony's DNA had been taken for the abuse of his daughters. Unfortunately, the lab had a problem. The DNA was not sent to CODIS for comparison. A few years later, this lab was shut down. Investigators noticed similarities between Maria's murder and the murders of Diana Rebolar and Dana Sanchez. Diana Rebolar had been walking to the grocery store to get sugar. She purchased the sugar but never made it home. Her body was found in an abandoned warehouse with a tourniquet around her neck. Diana was only nine years old. Her body had been left out overnight in only her t-shirt in the August heat of 1994. Neighbors had told police about a strange van they had seen in the area. In July of 1995, 16-year-old Dana Sanchez was on her way to see her boyfriend when she disappeared. She was walking down a street when a van approached her, and she got in. Anthony tried to have his way with her, probably like the girls that he had rode around picking up so long ago, but she refused him, and he killed her. She was reported missing, but they weren't able to find her body. It wasn't until an anonymous phone call was placed to Barbara Robertson at KPRC. She's an assignment editor there. The anonymous man on the other end of the line told Barbara a serial killer was at large in Houston. He gave her the location of Dana Sanchez's body. Her body had started decomposition and a lot of evidence was lost, but the tourniquet around her neck along with the phone call, told police she was connected to Maria's murder. In 2002, Lieutenant Danny Billingsley took charge of the homicide unit and made finding the tourniquet killer a priority. They submitted the DNA that was found under Maria Estrada's fingernails, and they found a match to Anthony Allen Shore in the system. Anthony denied involvement in the murders for hours, but eventually, after 11 hours, broke down, confessing to murdering Maria Estrada, Diana Robaler, and Dana Sanchez. But Anthony also confessed to another murder that had not been previously linked, the murder of a 15-year-old Lori Trembley in 1986. Lori was walking home from school when Shore attacked her. Anthony tried to sexually assault Lori, but he wasn't able. He did use a ligature to strangle her before dumping her body behind a Mexican restaurant. The reason Lori's murder had not been connected 
was because the same type of tourniquet was not used. This was Anthony's first murder, or at least the first that he confessed to. When asked why he changed up his technique, he said that while strangling Lori, he hurt his finger. Anthony also confessed to the assault of Selma Jansky. She was 14 when she arrived home after school. Anthony was waiting for her in her kitchen. He claimed to her multiple times that he was only there to rob her house. But then he tied her up and raped her. When he was finished, he got up and he left on foot without killing her. I found myself wanting to call her lucky, as we often do when people are in situations of less trauma than other people. But she's not lucky because she has to live with the trauma of being sexually assaulted for the rest of her life. Although Anthony confessed to four murders, the prosecution chose to try him for only one, the murder of Maria Estrada. This was the case that they had strong evidence. They had DNA evidence for. According to Oxygen.com, this is when all the really horrible things started to really come out about Anthony. The women of Anthony's past, wives, girlfriends, his daughters, all testified. It was said that he regularly abused, drugged, and raped the women in his life. They also testified that he often used drugs and kept child pornography. When police searched Anthony's home, garage, and storage unit, they found these strange collages Anthony had made with photos of lips and breasts of young girls. Anthony asked for the death penalty against the advice of his counsel when he was found guilty for capital murder. But he did later try to appeal and get out of it. His lawyers claimed a head trauma from an auto accident years before had caused him to disregard their advice, but that didn't work. He did succeed in postponing his end date at one point, his execution date, by confessing falsely to other murders. Many people do believe that Anthony Shore has more victims. His daughter believes that, his sister believes that, but investigators claim that Anthony is not a suspect in any other murders. Anthony's daughter, Tiffany, as well as his sister, felt that the death penalty was appropriate to stop Anthony Shore from hurting anyone else. Shore claimed that during the murders, there were voices in his head telling him that you're going to have her in one way or another, telling him to kill them, telling him to rape them. He had many, many people fooled. He kept up appearances and was a great manipulator. He wrote letters of apology to his daughters. Tiffany saw these as empty words. It seems to me like it's just more manipulation. Well, then I'd like to uh, talk about what's important. And to me, I've come to realize, especially in the last few days, you know, it puts things in a different perspective when you're facing your impending demise, that many of the things that you think are important in life become a lot less important. You know, material things and... Uh, activities and the people that you sometimes think are 
you know, top of the list really aren't who you thought they were. A lot of things change, but what becomes important to me is love. Anthony Allen Shore was executed by lethal injection on January 18th, 2018. And I don't think there's any greater love in this lifetime than children, your own kids. And I've got two out there, Amber and Tiffany. What I'd like to talk about is have the opportunity to say goodbye, to tell my girls, both Amber and Tiffany, and my grandkids, Floyd and Aphrodite, uh, goodbye. I wish I'd had time to meet them in person, to sit, you know, to speak with them. I wish I had an opportunity to speak with my daughters face to face and tell them that I love them. And you know, I messed up. I'm not. Before he was executed, he claimed that he had made his peace. His last words were, "Oh, ye, I can feel that." I hope you enjoyed this episode of Coffee Murder Mystery. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Evil people are everywhere. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee Murder and Mystery. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we also have a YouTube channel. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast 5-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.